everybody sniffs at services and says services are bad. Services are actually your key to helping that customer get value from that product and making it sticky so they renew. And obviously, you don't need the heavy touch that we had. It can be done in a much lighter touch. Hello and welcome to this episode of Confessions of a B2B Marketer. I apologize for my audio. I am traveling and didn't bring the microphone. So throughout this episode, the audio on my side may be slightly worse. I apologize for that. It's only going to happen for one more episode. So today we have an interesting one, slightly different from the typical episode you may hear, but we have somebody who has been on the whole journey in B2B. They have started and grown a services and software company from nothing, raising no money to going public within 17 years and then selling the company a few years later. If Elizabeth Gooch MBE is joining us to talk about that journey, we dig into the balance between services and software, the need or the power of a guarantee, and then what worked for them 15 or so odd years ago to find these big enterprise customers. So we'll jump into that in a second. But before that, we have to give a big shout out to fame.so. They're producing this show. It's also my business. If you're a B2B company and want to start a podcast that will have a multitude of benefits for your brand, not just increasing brand awareness, then go to fame.so, request a proposal, say that you came from confessions of a B2B marketer. With that, let's jump into the discussion with Elizabeth now. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Hi there, Tom. Nice to meet you. I think it was a comment maybe on a LinkedIn post regarding bootstrap businesses yeah. and your comment was super insightful and our the dm conversation we had afterwards also insightful and so what i'd love to do in this episode is dig into that experience you had with your business over the past i think 12 years with eg solutions and a first we'll just set the scene and then i want to just understand the balance we have between software and services and how that changed throughout the lifetime of the business and then I'm sure there'll be other stuff we'll get into. But does that make sense? Are we good to go? Yeah. Cool. So if we could start off just by understanding when the business started, what the business does, and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, sure. First of all, to let you know that it was actually acquired in November 2017. So it's what it did. And actually, the post-2017 stories is probably as interesting as the journey that we went on from launch. But audaciously, at age 26, I went into a bank and said, I want to open a bank account to start a consultancy to improve performance in financial services. And I was laughed out of, out of there. It was HSBC. Then I got laughed out of Barclays, Lloyds, and so on and so forth. And ironically, they all became customers in the end. But my career prior to that, I'd worked in industry. My dad had said, you need to get a proper job. So I'd gone into financial services and just basically saw chaos people. It was very people-centric, the way that work was being managed. Because I'd worked in industry, alongside production lines, my head thought of production line thinking. So I developed a process, which I called the process for managing, which was a consultancy service to start with, that actually just basically lined people up along a production line and got the work flowing much faster and streamlined the work, et cetera, and cleared backlogs reduce stress for everybody and so on and so forth. And that was really good. And I kept applying for jobs to be promoted and being told no because I was too young. So I thought I sod this. So I left to start a company and hence the story of walking into a bank and saying that's what I wanted to do. 
uh, ended up with a bank account with the post office, which was a bit of a random place to get a bank account. I mean, you could get a bank account anywhere now if you want to start a business, but that it was you had to beg, steal and borrow to try and convince people that you were kosher. The principle behind the business was improving operational performance. And I spotted in the organisation I was in, there was a problem and been told the similar problem in other places. So I didn't build any tech at all for 12 months. I actually went into organisations to solve the problem and see whether the problem was a common problem. And it absolutely was. So I think that was the first learn, really, is that what is the problem that I wanted to solve? And we had a very clear idea of what that was. So just to jump in. So pre-starting the company, you build up some expertise because of the roles you were doing previously. And then you're trying to progress in the area and people were like, no, you're too young, etc. And so then you're like, okay, I'll just take my expertise and I'll go to other companies and I'll sell that. That's essentially how the company started. 100%. Sell, sell that expertise. And with the view to building, I'm going to be completely honest, as a building spreadsheet database type system to support it. That was the thought process. Makes sense. First three consultancy assignments, all the same problem. And I just have a style of just getting alongside senior management and talking to them about, oh, this is the problem and this is how we're going to fix it. And got a friend to knock up this spreadsheet that I could actually use to actually deliver the results that needed to be delivered. And the basic outcome was basically doing more work with the same people or doing the same work with less people whilst at the same time delivering fantastic customer service and complying with regulations. That was basically the issues that they needed to solve. And how did you find those first three clients to work with? Actually, that's a really great story in itself because the only sales skills I'd ever learned was actually working for Everest Double Glazing part-time. And so to me, knocking on doors was the thing that you did. So I produced a brochure that was printed by a local print shop got on the train to London and went on, knocked on the doors and made friends with secretaries. In the old days, they had doormen that actually stopped hawkers going in. Yeah, last night I actually gate crashed a party and nobody even asked me who I was and where I was from. Nobody noticed it at all. But in the old days, you couldn't get in past the doorman. So I made friends with the doorman. I made friends with the reception people until they got so sick of me, they actually put me in touch with the man I wanted to speak to and then got the first three projects that way. So it was literally cold calling. That's incredible. Yeah. And then subsequently it was brochureware, just sending out mail shots, building database lists of financial services organizations, either head of customer service, head of operations, just send out a brochure that actually hits the nail on the head. Have you got these problems? Got a unique way of solving it. The other thing that helped was actually three successful projects. This is something I always teach my or coach my founders in is you invent something, find three people who can be your first early adopters. Even if they don't pay you anything for what you do, get a case study out of it because that case study is the gold dust that will get your next 10 and you get from the 10, you get to the main market. So those three people all were able to refer me on to other people. So who else do you know that might be interested in this? And actually what happened over time, Tom, is you built a sort of a community without that being a thing then. But it was most definitely a community of users who all liked to, that's how it became over time, work together and share best practices. Even though they were competing, they loved the solution so much they wanted to share and show off how they actually used it. Those first three were done. Now, the funny part of the story is 
that the goal was, yeah, we'll build some software. Was that always the goal, like right from the start, pre you doing the cold calling? No, the goal was yeah, solve this problem with spreadsheets. That was the initial goal. But then realized actually that spreadsheets didn't do everything that we needed to do. So I needed to actually build a product. And just like to jump with all these questions, I think it's super interesting. Roughly how many years ago did you get the first clients? I'm 62 now. So this is 1988 when we got the first clients and 1989 when the first iteration of what would now be called an MVP. That's awesome. And there's a lot of this stuff about women in business, et cetera, but I had no issues at all, none at all. I don't know if it's because I'm just a cheeky bat madam. I just force my way in and, and crack on and take my notice. But actually, I think I was allowed to get away with stuff because I was a woman, actually. I was allowed to say things that I don't think they'd necessarily take from colleagues or from a man. You know, literally, they'd say, come on, tell me how dirty it is in my, back, in my shop floor. They wanted to know that. Cool. It was quite a very collaborative style, let's say that. And then, because the audience is like mainly B2B marketers, some founders, entrepreneurs. And so I just want to dig into like how we thought we were successful with the, like the early getting of clients. And I think just from what you told me, it seems like two things. A, you were just like relentless with the cold calling. And then B, when you were sending out the mail shots, because you had such a good idea about what the problems were that you were able to solve, it's almost like the copywriting on those mail shots must have like really hit a nerve because you had a great understanding. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. I think. It's interesting, actually, because post-2017, go and start again. I needed to, it took me two or three years, actually, to find out what is the problem that I wanted to solve next. And I'm that sort of a person. I think, and that's something that I see is really important in proposition development, knowing what is the problem that you solve really crystal clearly and who you solve it for, what's going to be the outcome if they solve that problem, will they pay for it, and... Will they buy it from you? Those, to me, are the five key questions that actually everything hangs up. If you can't articulate those things really clearly, we've got a problem. And honestly, some do have a problem. I can work with founders sometimes for two or three months to actually get that succinctly stated. And I found it hard, actually, because when you're doing it yourself, you're so close to the weeds of what you do. Actually, being able to stand back and see what the outcome is for your customers is a hard thing. You, just, you need to go knock yourself in a room, really, and try and forget a lot of what you know and drill it down to some really simple statements in your customers' words. And once you've got that, I think you can open a lot of doors. Very good advice. Can we jump back into the story? So we've had the three clients. They've been successful. We have the case studies. And then at some point, you are like, we could... Build more than spreadsheets here. Yeah, I'll be completely honest. I can't even use a spreadsheet myself. I have to have help with anything technical. I have to have help, and I think that's my strength actually in tech. Is I'm the tech business person, and my co-founder is my tech 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 co-founder. So obviously, the person who was actually operating the spreadsheets is like this. This can be done better. We'll build a system. And two things happened. First of all, we shared the story of doing that with the early adopter clients. And they were like, yeah, we're interested. We'll pay a small amount of money. You will know, be asked for a small amount of money to be there to invest in doing that. So we got 30K each off these three early adopters. And off he set actually doing that development. And we produced that first iteration of that software. And it's sitting on, on learn 
whatever you would call the machines then. They certainly weren't laptops, but they're sitting, sitting on a machine. And I get a call from an IT director who says, his secretary actually, can you come to a meeting with whatever his name was? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking really good. In with the IT director. And he absolutely roasted me from one end of the room to the other because they we networked this software and it's brought the network down. And I'm like, I can't we didn't develop it as network software. It was meant to just sit up the corner and people go and use it when they need to. And he's like, well, I'll have you know, young lady, we see this as mission-critical software. How much will it cost to redevelop it? And I just plucked a number out the air and said about, I don't know, about 200K. And he said, go away and write me a contract. He said, let's get it done. My, my teams need this. Wow. And I, I don't know where I'm from, but quick as a flash, I said to him, We'd have to keep the copyright for that fee. And he said, because we didn't use the word IP in those days. And he said, of course, he said, I'm not in the software business. So I got 200K from a client to go and build it. And then about a third of the way through the development, they changed their mind on the database they wanted. So I got another 80K. And that basically provided the funding to build our first product. That's incredible. So they eventually gave you 280K and you could build some software that you could then go and sell to loads of other people. Yeah, yeah. And that started a, what I call our customer-centric development process and a methodology that we use throughout, and I would recommend to anyone actually, is we would do 50% of the development and the users would finish it off for us in the terms of the design because they know exactly how that problem needs to be solved. So you take to them the basics and then they tell you what it is that they want it to do and very often will contribute to the development of that. If somebody wanted to do something that was way off piste, it's definitely that's a piece of bespoke software, do it for you, give it to you. But if it was a core product, it was constantly being iterated by the clients and it was mostly funded by the gross margin from the services, which was 65%, topped up by these additional bits of fees that we always got, which were, all, were never fully priced. There were always contributions to, but that's basically how the product got built and became the leading product, well, created a category and became the leading software within that category and the benchmark for everyone else to try and copy, which again was a bit of an interesting story in itself, but that's how that software was developed and how it became very sticky because it did exactly what A, it did what it said on the tin and B, it did exactly what the clients need to solve the problem that they had and they never wanted to do, to let it go. Cool. So the product that you started building with that 280K, that was the software that you were selling right up until you sold the company in 2017? No, that was iteration two. So the first 90K was what you'd now, do, now label as an MVP as far as sort of modern language would be. The 280K was the next sort of proper development. And that was bigger. That had a lot more functionality and capability in it. And then there was a wholesale change because we started in perpetual licensing world. We needed to do a big change to move it towards B2B SaaS, but it was never multi-tenant because of the size and what it held. It was always private cloud. So it was on subscription licensing but it needed to be distributable much easier than hiking around the country with a floppy disk. That's the history of it, Tom. You're probably too young to remember floppy disks, but there you go. No, I think they were around like the start. <laughs> On a shelf where it's a sort of relic. Possibly. <laughs> okay, makes sense. Now, 
I do want to go back in time, though. You started building the software, but you are still delivering the services at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And so would a client feasibly have the software and they'd also pay you for services? So when we were in sort of perpetual world, we were selling the services, believe it or not, giving the software away free and charging a maintenance fee. When we moved to subscription, then we introduced a very unique business model as well, which I haven't told you about. And that was part of the old days, which was the benefit realisation guarantee. So we need to come back to that. But when we moved to the sort of private cloud subscription model, we most definitely had a separate licence fee and the services fee. So in the old days, the fees were mostly, I'd say 85% were services and 15% software. And at the end, the services were about 25% of the business. So it completely changed over. But those, those services were important to delivering that benefit realisation guarantee, which is really what was our competitive advantage. That was the big story there. And that came about that if you want to hear it, it's essentially clients saying to me one day, why would we do improving operational management with you when we can go with XYZ big four, can't remember who it was. And I just said, because we'll guarantee the benefits. And he went, what does that mean? And I said, you don't pay us unless we deliver the results. And he's like, I don't pay you unless you deliver the results. And I was like, no. So we did a number of projects free of charge until we delivered the results. And I'm going to say to you, have fingers crossed behind my back. For a lot of the times, so, oh my God, are we going to deliver the benefits? Until we realised the power of what we were delivering delivered way more than the guarantee time after time after time. So we used to get paid the fee plus a percentage of the savings that we delivered as well. So that was a massive uptick in, in margins and performance for us. And were we the only people that ever did it? Most people would shy away from it and say, it's a really risky thing. And for us, it wasn't risky because we'd done it so many times. And the software managed and measured the benefits. So there was a clear audit trail of where you started from and where you end, why the customer should pay for what they'd had. Do you think that you were able to do that because you're better than everyone else simply because you've just been doing it for longer than everybody else or was there some other magic source? I think it came back to the expertise at the beginning that you talked about earlier, knowing that it worked and obviously doing projects without the software to start with, knowing what you were doing. The software tracking it was obviously really helpful because then it was there were three times that we didn't get paid for the benefit their benefit realisation guarantee. And that was because the consultant hadn't properly tracked or the person who was doing the implementation hadn't properly tracked. So we were like, well, that can't happen. You know, if you have a rule of three, if you make a mistake three times, you need to go and sort of give yourself a good beating, really. Mm -hmm. So we make sure the software can actually track it so that it's very clear to everybody and transparent all the way through that will be done. So I think we had a, a very... Subject matter expert skill set, that's what people talked about is our people were very well trained. Good bedside manner, understood the client problem and the clients and the way they tick. And the software just worked, you know, it just did what it needed to do because it was a perfect fit. It was like a hand in a glove in terms of what they needed and what it could do. Makes sense. So obviously the guarantee was helping you sell the software and the services. Was there anything that either you or other people in the team were doing? on the marketing side that you thought was particularly impactful? I've listened to some of your podcasts and I listen to marketing stuff now. And I'm like, God, if, if we had known then what is available now, we would have been you know, 
global rock stars. Because actually marketing was a very hard slog. But the interesting thing, a lot of the old stuff is coming back. I don't think there's anything wrong with a targeted mail shot because people don't get mail. They get as many emails as I used to get rubbish through my post box. And they delete, 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 they don't read them. Then you get a letter from somebody that, you know, or something that catches your eye. I think events are really, really powerful and we were amazing at events. We went to the events where our customers hung out. I think that's that's a modern way of doing sort of social marketing is to hang out where your customers are. We hung out where they were physically. But I'm going to say our digital marketing was very rudimentary compared with what's available now. So we had a lot to learn from that point of view. Could have done with your podcasts way back. Makes total sense. So direct mail events were like you would say the key growth drivers alongside they were probably amplified by the... Calling. Cold. Cold calling. Yeah, cold calling. Yeah, definitely. SDRs. We had an SDR who was a qualified banker and he was relentless. So he talked the talk of the customers, but he just never took no for an answer. But he could have conversations with people. So he would probably do, I don't know, 25 calls a day rather than the 50 that you might expect now, but they'd be 25 well-researched calls, building relationships with people, knowing that he could go back to them. If we wanted a company, he wouldn't give up till he got it. I mean, this is the old school playbook. And this was working up until you sold the company in 2017, right? So cold email, email events. Yeah. And what was also working was the recurring revenue model, obviously, which everybody knows. We had, because the value that people saw in our contracts, and it was enterprise, minimum three-year term, up to seven years, with no cancellation clauses in those contracts. So the contract to recurring revenue was very valuable. Yeah, nice. And the you mentioned about the services software split. When we're doing all these outbound campaigns, events, etc., were we selling the software in first, or were we going to the client, understanding what they wanted, and then selling the services or software, or did it come together? Never selling any of that. We were selling a result. We're actually saying, have you got this problem? Would you like this outcome? You need to speak to us. It doesn't say we've got a software package that does this. That to me is like a supermarket shelf where there's tins of beans. I'm hungry. Do I want a tin of beans? Do I want a tin of tomatoes? No, this was very targeted. I want this customer. You've got this problem. We can solve it for you. Let's go get it. Interesting. And sell it. We sold to, so we sold financial services, telcos, BPOs, the business process outsourcers, local government, utilities. So big service sector organizations. It's not like we were talking selling to SMEs where there were thousands. These companies were in groups of hundreds in the different territories that we sold in. So that's small market, really. So you've got to be very precise in what you're doing and going after them. But a scattergun approach isn't going to work. You need much more of a rifle shot. And you can afford a higher acquisition cost because the fee, the price that you're charging, we always charge relative to the value that we delivered. So we would guarantee 25% productivity improvement across X hundred people. That's a big saving for an organization. And we would take a slice of that. It was a fixed price for the software and a slice for the services. So the customer always always got return on investment two or three times in a year. We always got a price that we actually wanted. But you, a scattergun wasn't appropriate. You've got the luxury, I guess, in a market that size to actually know who that market is really 
really clearly. I say that to my founders now, you know, markets can be small, but they can also be huge. And the huge markets, it's a really big problem when where do you start? Let's hone that down to a subsector and a subsector and a subsector, a group that we can actually go after. Because half the time you don't need that many in order to actually hit your targets. So you know, trying to market to the world is possibly wasting money. Let's look at what we actually want and how can we most efficiently go after it. I really like what you're saying about you're selling the solution to a problem because really the client, I guess, doesn't really care if they're buying software or services, they want the outcome. That makes total sense. But you mentioned that there was a fee for the software and then there was a performance-based fee for the services. Could you just clarify what you mean by that? Yes, I'll talk about the end game rather than the earlier days because we were making this all up as we went along. So the end game, actually, Tom, just need to step back a little bit because I made a statement earlier about pioneering a market. That is a really tough dig to do. Nobody else did what we were doing. Why is that tough? You would say, well, that's fantastic. Nobody's doing clear blue ocean, go for it. But when people are buying and particularly when there's procurement teams, if they can't compare you with something and put you into a pigeonhole, it makes it very difficult for them to go, well, what are you? What is it? What do you do? What do you do? And that's a lot of the time why we sold the result rather than the product. Because actually selling the product, people would go, I don't even know what that is. So it was easier to sell the result. So we built this market and there was no competition other than other consultancies. And we had this sort of unique, the business model and the software was important, not just for the implementation and delivering the benefits, but sustaining those going forwards, which obviously then became our recurring revenue. That was good and helpful, but also not helpful from a pricing point of view. Like most founders, we really struggled on what should our price point actually be if we wanted to carve out the software separately from the services? When it was all in one, it was completely fine. When it was being carved out, it was more, it became more difficult. Anyway, very helpfully, some competitors came into the market and they set a price point. And that price point was for a lot less functionality and capability than we had. And so what we did was double it and we rolled with that. And we just found that over time as they pushed their price up we could push ours up even more so we were actually always more expensive than the competition and the competition were these big american firms one of which ended up acquiring us and one of the uk firm so i think having the leading capability enabled us to increase the price of the software itself but essentially the software was sold on a per seat basis named user basis and the services were then basically a six-month fixed timescale implementation that went from start to finish, implement the software, which was really easy, set it up, it was a bit more complex because the processes were always messy, and then teach the people how to use it so they delivered the benefits. And in that six-month period, we delivered the guarantee and get paid. So that's basically how it is. That model changed so that we got paid our license fee up front and the services later. Towards the end, that's actually where it was. And if the over the six months, for whatever reason, you didn't hit the guarantee, then you wouldn't get the services revenue. But if you delivered the benefit and more, you would also get a slice of the upside. Yeah, that was before we listed. After listing, we had to stop that because the analysts, et cetera, didn't like it from a predictability point of view. So you become a bit more predictable and a bit more mainstream in what you do. If, the thing with you're expected to conform to a lot of norms, I think, when you're a listed business. And if you don't conform to them, then it starts to worry people. So sometimes it's just easy to just do what you've always, do what makes it easy for them, I would say. 
Yeah, that's how it went. Makes total sense. What an amazing story. I love all these things you were doing back like 10, 15 years ago. They're still totally applicable now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this took a lot to learn, actually, Tom. I think that was it. Because there was none of this community, tech community, podcasts, learning, none of that. Literally, you were a bit of a, you were either IBM or you were nobody. Do you know what I mean? And there was a little business in Staffordshire that started in my bedroom with one pound and a cat building a tech product that was sold to big organizations throughout the world. It was bonkers, really. What a great, great Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Loved it. A thing we have to highlight also is that there was no, I believe, no external funds raised until the public listing in 2000. And when was that, actually? 2005. 2005. I have two versions of that, of this statement, actually. One is I say, you would never do that, would you? But actually, I see the effort that founders have to put into raising now. And with listing, you six months, it costs a lot of money and you've got the price to pay afterwards in looking after that listing. But actually, six months of paid and you get onto the market and raising thereafter is so easy. Whereas I see it's almost a full-time, these are full-time job for founders. They go from raise to raise with not a lot of time in between. Wow. What a story, Elizabeth. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing. Now, obviously, I understand okay. that now you work directly with founders, etc. So yeah. any founders listening will obviously link to Elizabeth's LinkedIn profile below. Go straight to Elizabeth. Anything you want to share about that service that you are offering? It's a very personal service. It's a one-to-one with founders rather than one-to-many. But um, obviously, I've got a lot of battle scars that I've picked up over the years, and I'm happy to share. We've talked a lot of success today, but I'm happy to share the messy bits with them as well. But so I'm a very practical person. So sleeves rolled up. I'm a partner with founders to help them get from A to B. Primarily, they are looking for either raising, preparing to raise, or achieving their targets and pre or post raise. They either need to achieve a target so they can raise or achieve a target afterwards because they promised it to investors. So I spend a lot of my time on go-to-market as well as fundraising and financial management. That's the key things that I can bring to organizations. And I have a lot of contacts as well to help them. Makes total sense. So many learnings. I'm going to try and list off a couple that I had. So three things that are still working today that worked a few years back, direct mail, cold outreach, and events, the power of a guarantee. And then also perhaps the most powerful one was that actually, I don't know if prospects or potential clients really care too much about how they get that outcome. You can deliver that with software or services. They just want the outcome. So those are three things I'm taking away. Anything else you think I missed there? Yeah, I think we should add to this that actually time to value for the customer is the most important thing that you can do. And how you measure product market fit is actually with your retention rates. If people are buying your product and ditching it quickly or not renewing at the end of their first period, it's because they're not getting value from it. So everybody sniffs at services and says services are bad. Services are actually your key to helping that customer get value from that product and making it sticky so they renew. And obviously, you don't need the heavy touch that we have. It can be done in a much lighter touch. I think there's a bit of an aversion to services in SaaS businesses because of the impact on margin. But they have to, the counterbalance to that is the benefit to your retention rates by having some services gives better value to the customer, better value to the business. And we'll finish on that. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tom. 
Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. It was awesome. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed it. Now we have to give a shout out to Samurai Links. A big chunk of customers for Fame, the business that produces this show, comes from Google Organic. Now we've been working with Samurai Links to acquire, in a good way, links to our domain. What this does is it means we can rank higher for terms that are relevant for people that are looking to buy our services. Now, when I say good links, what I mean is that I, as the founder, get to input valuable knowledge into posts that go live on other domains and I have a link back from that domain to our domain. So maybe that's a post that's the 25 ways to improve podcast growth. I give my input, Samurai Links organize this whole thing for me. I get the link back to Fame from that domain. Their domain authority is high. It makes my our domain look good. I mean, it helps us rank higher and make more. And therefore, get more customers. So if you're interested in doing that, there'll be a link below the Samurai Links where you can go and check them out and potentially work with them. So with that, we have to give a massive thank you to Elizabeth. We have to give a massive thank you to Fame and Samurai Links for sponsoring. And we have to give a massive thank you for listening.